Today's guest on the podcast is Holly Whitaker. She's a sobriety expert and voice in our sober, sober industry. And she doesn't even really need an introduction, but she's the author of the book, Quit Like a Woman. And she is at Holly on Instagram. Very inspirational. And this is an interview from January. (laughs) That's just now getting posted up because I had some technical difficulties and finally got them ironed out to get this edited. There was a couple blips. So the quality is not as good as it normally is. And I apologize for that. But I didn't want her message to get lost. So please enjoy this episode with Holly Whitaker. Hi, and welcome to the same 24 hours podcast. I'm Meredith Atwood, author of the book, The Year of No Nonsense. I'm a former attorney turned writer, speaker and Ironman triathlete. Although right now, all I really like to do is lift weights. We all have the same 24 hours, but it's what we do in those hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness and success. It's my goal to crack the code on a life of less nonsense so we can all make the most of our 24 hours. So let's get started. Now that doesn't work. So anyway, it's totally fine. So it's actually really a good thing because I've, I'm a podcast dinosaur and I've been resisting the urge to do zoom. And so you're forcing me <laughs> to, you know, to grow up. <laughs> I used to use Skype when Laura and I used to do our podcast, we used to use Skype because it actually has a really good recording device and I think right. the quality is really good, but it just, Microsoft has so many issues for whatever reason. It just, Anyway, so yes, they um, have made it very difficult. <laughs> yeah, it's annoying. Um, but Zoom is great. We use Zoom at work. We love Zoom. I just hope I'm recording everything. It says it's recording, and I it said to my computer, it's all good. So we'll see. I can record from my end just to make sure if you want. Yeah, would you mind since this no, is the first all. one? Just in I, case. Yeah, I, I just requested to record, and so oh. you might have to let me. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't say more. Let me see. Ask to allow record. There we go. Great. Okay, cool. Okay. Beautiful. All right, friend. Well, I will record the intro later. So we'll just jump right into it. What time do you need to go? Um, a few minutes ahead. So they pack my, I have 40 hours of meetings a week right now. So they yeah. pack my schedule back to back. Okay. So we'll be done by nine 50. Uh, sure. I can go to nine fifty five. Okay. Um, no problem. And we're going to talk about your book. Anything else you're promoting right now? Um, no, I mean, we're always promoting our program. Um, I don't do it enough. And so I think (laughs) talking about Tempest and then also my book, um, and then hopefully just not fucking talking about AA. I just can't. I really (laughs) don't care. And no problem. I am. I'm not an AA junkie. And so my podcast, I'm sober. I'm four years, but, um, it's not a sobriety podcast. Yes. So I think this is a good opportunity to kind of dispel some of the the myths that you, you know, like there's no such thing as an alcoholic, that kind of stuff with, yeah. with the audience and also maybe raise awareness for people that, you know, are teetering on the edge yeah, and don't realize, I it, don't realize it. So we don't have to get into the AA thing at all. Great. Thank Fine. you. Um, do you still do the teetotaler 
like hashtag tattoo all that? Yeah, I think like I have been involved in so many, I mean, I have cared only about two things in the last few years. One is building out our business. We have 44 people that work there now. Um, wow. And then also writing the book. And so that was such an important piece of it. It's just lost. Um, I just, I, I think like I need to recirculate it and talk about it again. Um, but yeah, somebody was on a call the other day and actually was talking about how they identify as a TT. Um, so yeah. Um, yes. Okay. Well, I got, I got a TT tattoo on my one year. <laughs> oh my God. Isn't it yeah. so bad? I wonder how many people have them now. My best, my best dude friend got his on his one year. I bet there's a lot. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot. And people are like, what is that titanium? <laughs> <laughs> no, fine. All right. All right, friend, let's get started and I'll get some dead air so I can get the background noise and then we'll go. Awesome. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Same 24 Hours podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Atwood. Today's guest is Holly Whitaker. Hi, Holly. Hi, Meredith. I'm so glad to talk to you. I'm really glad to talk to you. We've been following each other for a couple of years now. Yeah, we've been ping-ponging around. And now all the books are out. Now all the books are out. Yes. All the books are out. So how are you doing? Your book has been out, what, a month? Are we at a month now? Yeah, we're at a month. And I'm finally doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's been really different. And um, I Now, is this your first book? It's my first book. Okay. Yeah. And I, I was talking to someone last night actually about it and, and she's been, she's publishing a book in May and she's had, she's been on the cover of magazines and she's had, um, I mean, she's, she's fairly well known. Um, and she was just asking for advice. And I, I think I was telling her what it was like and she was like, yeah, that's already pretty much my existence. I think that there is just a difference between having an Instagram you know, that, that has, you know, a large following or ha like writing blogs or being, and then all of a sudden stepping into something that is so much more vulnerable and so much more, um, you know, I mean, once the book leaves, it becomes other people's it's, you know, right. Right. I experienced the same thing. Um, this was my second book, but it wasn't, my first book wasn't a vulnerable topic. Yeah. And so it just like went out and I was like, oh, it's fine. You can either do a triathlon or you don't have to. Yeah. <laughs> and, and no one cares. But then this one was, you know, exactly. That's how I felt too. Like the, the morning of publication day, I thought, oh, this is terrible. Dread, right? <laughs> just complete and total dread. I know. I, I was, I, the whole time I was like, I should be enjoying this. And I didn't. I, I think it was, it went so against my nature. Um, I wanted to just not be that exposed. Um, and it was very exposing. So. Right. Which is so crazy because we know that, you know, it's coming, right? I mean, I knew it was coming, but then like on publication day, I was like, why? Yeah, no, but it doesn't, that wasn't what the woman asked me last night. She's like, well, didn't you, was this by surprise? And I was like, it wasn't by surprise because I knew in my mind it was going to cause problems for me. But like, <laughs> I don't think I could have prepared emotionally or phys like physiologically, you know, just that inundate, like the energy that come, there's so much that happened and the postpartum, and the, there was just, there was a lot. Um, but I think I am finally feeling back to like my normal self. Like I remember who I am. I remember what I'm doing. <laughs> uh, I remember who I am. <laughs> <laughs> 
And your cat is probably happy too. Mom is back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's hard though. Um, so I think I felt better after a month too. So yeah, we your next book can be about how to write and survive a book. Right. Your well, mom, Courtney mom book. just wrote a book about that. Um, she, we, I don't know if you know who she is. She's incredible. She's an incredible author and she typically writes fiction, but she just wrote a, a nonfiction book about... Who is that? Her name is Courtney Mom. Okay. M-A-U-M. And she wrote like um, Castellegre. She wrote Touch. Um, I'm, I'm having so much fun here without you. Um, but she, it was just, I think the thing that was really beautiful about this, and I hope like this is, I think this, this is probably what we'll get into talking about, which is like the normalization of something that feels so foreign. And I had friends that have published that were normalizing it for me and saying, this is okay. It is okay that you hate this. It's okay that you don't, you know, that you don't feel like you think you should feel. Um, and I think that's what's also been so important about finding other other people that are on a path of recovery or that have changed their relationship with alcohol. Is is it normal? Like when when you see other people doing it and they're like, oh yeah, it was like this for me. It normalizes something that can feel so isolating. Yeah. So let's let's talk about the path that that brings us to the present, which you know could take a whole entire day to talk about. But obviously, you your book is "Quit Like a Woman," which is a, a sobriety, um, I would say, memoir, but more than that, way more than that, because it's it delves into so many issues and, and culture, and and it just is much more than a memoir. But how did you get to the point? One, where you decided to be a sober person, and two, where you knew that you had to share it with the world? Ooh, um, I think it was the first one was a very, I just posted something actually, because I think the question most people have is, how did you ever get there? And because it seems so far away when you're, when you first start pondering, maybe alcohol's not working out for me. Right. Um, I, it was just a series of things. It was just the recognition and people that I'd quit drinking and feeling such a familiarity with that fate, even though I didn't want that fate. I think it was knowing that, that it could get so much worse, even when it wasn't that bad. It was having, being really sick of, of, um, not growing up and feeling like I was, I was just missing something. Like I was just missing this piece of maturity that I felt I should have had by then. And I think just like, I, I hate, I, I wanted so much more. I had this trip in 2000, in 2012 on my birthday, I went to Esalen. I lived in, in the Bay area and Esalen is this like vortex and it's amazing. And I had this like huge privilege of being able to go there for a weekend on my birthday. And I just remember coming back and talking to one of my friends being you know, drunk at a bar like a week later after I'd spent a weekend not drinking and detoxing and just meditating. And for the first time in my adult life, feeling, I think, happy. Mm-hmm. And I had a friend who mentioned something to me and just said, like, just who recognized my struggle, even though I tried so hard for people not to see my struggle. And, and I mean like my emotional struggle, my, my anxiety, my depression, my like depth. And she said something like, I just see so much more for you. I see so much bigness for you. You're going like that. And I knew that I knew that because like reading eat, pray, love or wild, like those stories were like my stories. And so I think it was just like this, awakening over time. And I was listening to Russell Brand and Tommy Rosen yesterday on the Russell Brand podcast. And Tommy Rosen reminded me of this beautiful way of putting what, you know, the choice to 
to change your life. And like a bottom is not like anything specific. It's just the moment that you're willing to tell the truth to yourself. And I think I was getting closer and closer to being strong enough to tell the truth to myself, which was that it was what I was doing was not working. That's Uh, such a good, the bottom is, what did you say? The closest to being able to tell the truth to yourself? It's just the moment you're able to tell the truth to yourself. So nice because people think of bottom as so many different things. Like you don't have to be splayed out in the bottom of a, yeah, that's great. They don't. And I think that that's, I was reading this article about this woman in the New York times. I don't know if you read it. Um, I can't remember her name, but she was saying she had a, a medium drink. She was a medium drinker and she had a medium drinker bottom or something or medium bottom. And there's gray area drink. There's all of this, but it really is not different in that. Like there is just a moment when we stop running. And I think I had this very specific moment in 2000. I write about it in the book in 2000 and, and God, it, late, late 2012. And I was just try. I had been reading about, I'd been reading Alan Carr's book about how stupid alcohol is and how stupid drinking is. And it was starting to kind of work its way into me. And I wasn't drinking as much, even though I was still drinking plenty. And I just had this night out with one of my friends and we were, she and I were the same age and she acted, she got so drunk and I, ha- I couldn't get her into a cab and she, she jumped out of a cab and I just, I had sex with someone that I was so not into that night. And I was just like, this is a horror show. This isn't a life. And I wanted, I wanted out of it. I just yeah. did. So there, that was a very, like, I think there's a lot of moments, but that's the moment I was just like, I, I can live without this. I can and did you, this. is that the date you got sober or did you have some back and forth. Cause I always talk, people always ask me, you know, cause on December 12th, 2015, I decided no more and I didn't drink again, but I also had a lot of moments, you know, the prior 20 years where I was like, I'm done with this. <laughs> I quit, but that's the date that stuck. Yeah. And I think I had tried to make it work. I like, there was the 17 years that I tried to make it work and then yeah. about six months where I tried to remove it. And so I, 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 that weekend I went home, um, my cousin got married and I was just so nearing the end of it. And then I finished reading Alan Carr's book, which is just like Annie Grace's book or Jason Vale's book or any of these books that are written to basically reprogram your subconscious and, and, and your conscious uh, desire around alcohol. And it actually worked on me. It doesn't work on everybody like that, but it was just like, Oh my God, I don't want to ever do this again. And then, you know, and I, I just removed the alcohol and I didn't do really that much more yeah. to like heal myself. And then I started drinking again, um, in 2012, late 2012, a couple months later. And then I stopped for good in April, 2013 after doing a tremendous amount of work on myself. Um, and so it was easy by some measure and it was the most difficult thing I've ever done. And, um, I mean, it was and everything in between. And so um, I think the thing that helped me the most, though, was just I, ju- I got to the place where I knew alcohol would never do me any favors, that it was so that it was just we, we would never work it out. And right. so like it was like cigarettes, just something that I would be better off without completely. No and did you go for any did you go through any exercises to prove that to yourself? Because like I have people that I make make pro con list. I'm like, give me some pros of your drinking. And by the end of it, there aren't any, you know, cause any pro that you perceive as a pro is just bullshit. Yes. Um, I, 
I mean, I, Alan Carr had some exercises at the end of his book, but I didn't mean to do that exercise. It was pretty clear for me. I just, I had always had this conception that alcohol was supposed to work. I had always felt I was supposed to that. And I, and it was exhausting. And I think I was just like, I missed that place in my life where I didn't have to drink to enjoy myself. And there was this line in his book that just said, you can go back there. You can actually access that place that doesn't feel it needs to drink. And that was what I wanted more than anything. I just wanted to have it like almost just like have my mind rearranged in that way. And so it wasn't like I needed to be like, Oh, but it was just like, Oh God, I want that so bad. And I don't want this thing and this thing. I mean, I was drinking really, really heavily and I would go to bed, you know, sometimes like a couple bottles in or three bottles in. I drank some mornings, not all mornings, but enough. I, it was just getting narrower and narrower. And right. the way that, you know, that feeling you get like when you are hungover, which just feels like your insides are scooped out, like you're hollow. And I just, I couldn't stomach that anymore. I could not, there was nothing that could make that worth it. And so, Yeah. I mean, I had a similar, that's kind of how it happened for me too. I just knew, I did have a moment where I I had this fundamental belief that I would be dead in a year. I just was standing in my kitchen one day and I was like, you're going to be dead in a year. I hope you know that. (laughs) That's what I said to myself. And I thought, oh shit, I don't want to be dead in a year. So I had that moment, but yeah, it was kind of that realization that I just don't want this anymore. And I think so many people think that about their life in general, like when it's really the alcohol is the most easily removed. Yes. (laughs) It's not the full life that you don't want. It's just this part of it that will make your life better once removed. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah. That exactly. And I thought I I was going to die too. I mean, I, I was, I was 33 when I finally stopped and I thought I would be dead by 40. Like I just knew it when, which means like when I hit my 40th birthday, I was, I was like, I never thought I would be here. I really truly did. What were some of the reasons that you drank? Did you ever pinpoint kind of the why, or was it just a thing you did? Was like, you know, I mean, I think now that I've uncovered like the trauma from my childhood and, and kind of when I started drinking like at 17 and pretty much didn't stop, I, I can, I can, connect a dot (laughs) at this point like was there a reason or that you identified so many reasons I think there was you know I I grew up um and I like there's generational trauma um Mm -hmm. and I can trace it back really clearly um that showed up in my household and I um I think I I just I I would say I I struggled with, I mean, eating from a really young age, um, my body from a really young age. Um, I was, you know, I had, I was on diet pills in fifth grade. I was never okay. Let's start. Like I, I cannot remember a time in my life where I was okay and where it felt okay. And when my parents got divorced in high school, like my mom went back to work, my dad left the house, like was just gone. And my sister was gone too. And I was at the, you know, this like pivotal age and my, and my dad was, my dad came out, um, gay and I struggled with my sexuality. I struggled with my body. I struggled with, you know, feeling completely abandoned. And 
I could not, the only time that I could fit in, belong, feel okay was when I was, you know, higher drinking or smoking or doing anything to just not be with myself. Um, and food, like I, you know, I, I had severe eating disorders in, in high school and beyond. And it was just like never being okay. And, yeah. and also just having really no point. I did not understand the point of existence. I didn't have a strong faith. I didn't believe in, you know, I mean, I went through the motions of thinking I believed in God. And I, I, and I also, I did yoga starting in my early twenties and I did acupuncture. And I was constantly in between these states of transcend, like transcending and also just, and, and not, and, and being so deeply aware of the burden of living. And, um, yeah, I, I think it just was, I, I mean, I, 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 I think I, I never loved drinking or being high and, and smoking. And I loved drinking, being high and smoking. Right. Because <laughs> it was the only time I could feel anything remotely close to what I imagined we were supposed to feel. Right. That's such a, when you said I was never okay, that's exactly how I felt. That's how I feel about my life. I was just never okay. Yeah. I was, I was always just this, I call it a low boil sense of dread. It was just yes. constant. Um, yes. And my parents, like when, when my book came out and my mom finally read it, she goes, oh, I had no idea all this stuff. I just thought you had a bad attitude. That's <laughs> what she told me about my teenagers. Oh my God. But, yeah. And that's such a reflection of them too and what they were allowed to feel. I mean, you know, this this gets passed on and passed on. And I think like we break this and and then I think we also heal it going backwards and forwards. But I, I don't think, I think my mom was a, a little bit like constantly worried, um, but not just really not understanding where it came from. I just, I don't think anybody could have comprehended the depth of, of my pain. Right. Um, you know, and... So yeah, I mean, there was, there were so many reasons. And then you got sober and everything was perfect. Yeah. I mean, I had no problems. <laughs> That's when you have to do the real work. Bad news flash. Bad Spoiler news. alert. But different. I mean, I'm go, I have gone through some really heavy stuff the last couple of years and I think, I mean, moving to New York, turning 40, I lost my hearing. I have, like, I run a company and that is a totally different, you know, ball of wax. And, like, I have, I think the thing that is so, when I think about this, when I think about where I'm at and the work I'm doing on myself, there's this underlying sense of, of faith that I didn't have before. And this underlying sense of knowing the clouds part and knowing there is that like eternal sky and knowing that there is like, there is, there is so much more on the other side of our pain. Yes. Um, Yes. And that has changed it. So I can like this last month, it was hard. It was definitely depressing. I felt isolated. I felt the things that, you know, like we hate feeling. Um, and then also I didn't feel wrong for them. And I also knew that this is part of growth and knew that this is part of stretching into myself and knew, you know, basically had the tools for how to integrate what I was going through. And I think that that's why it's, you know, when I was a kid though, I just felt wrong. Right. Growth is the worst and the best. 
Growth is never good when you're in it. <laughs> it's so, and you like, you like reminisce it. I'm like, God, I really, like January, 2020, or like lost my hair and really grew from that. It was, it was, tr- it was a tremendous experience. And then when I'm in it, I'm just like, oh my God, I can't even see straight. I'm so lost, you know? Right. It's just, it is, it's very, it's very hard. Even when you have all, even when you have all the tools and all the knowledge, it's very hard to just let yourself be in the dark periods, you know, and the, the gestational periods. Right. Well, let's talk about your book. So I picked it, well, I guess you sent it to me and then I flipped it open to chapter four is where it fell <laughs> open, which the title is, there's no such thing as an alcoholic. And I thought, thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Holly, for saying that. (laughs) I crawl the walls when people call me an alcoholic. I know. I hate the word entirely. And I think like, it's really important to understand. I think that we're allowed to call ourselves whatever we want. And I have many friends that feel... But don't call me that. (laughs) Don't call me that. And don't generalize people that way. I think it's just so telling when you are talking to, I mean, I have had to, with my family, words are very important. Labels are very important. My sister works in the criminal justice system. You know, like we are very careful with the words that we choose. And I think, and hearing sometimes, like we had this, we had to have this conversation for years when she would say like some kid's addict, addict parent or alcoholic parent as, as if to describe everything about that human in one word. And I think it's, it is also one of these things because there isn't a representational... Uh, like first of all, those that, that have historically been in a representational purport, like uh, population of that are fine. Like that is their word. That is the word used by, by them in order to you know, declare and also, I would say, like make real what they've been through, mm-hmm. what they deal with. And at the same time, it's turned into this double-edged sword of having a label that first of all, typically is associated with a lot of stigmatized baggage and also is a self-fulfilling prophecy and also is a way for, you know, countless people to count people out. And also like just something that really reserves alcohol, like struggling with alcohol for a very small population when there are so many of us that are struggling with alcohol really puts the emphasis on the end stage result instead of just even the consumption in general. So there's, there's so many reasons to that. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> I'm just sitting here nodding. You can't see me. <laughs> why did you, why did, so why did you dislike it? Like, what was it about it? Did it, did you ever call yourself an alcoholic? No. So I, and without getting into AA, I went to AA when I was 20, 24 for yeah. six months. And yeah. I thought I can't end up like this this is, I can't. And they lost me at step one when they said my life, I was powerless and my life was unmanageable. They lost me. And so for me, everything that kind of spun out of, of alcoholic really stung me. Cause I, I, first of all, I never believed it was a disease. I believed it was a problem. (laughs) And I, I thought if people can get over this, if they can, if these people have been 20 years sober, it's not a disease, you know, right. they're, they're cured, whatever. Right. And, you know, I just, it never felt right to me. And also because of the stigma. I mean, I used to think about how, when you would, <laughs> when I would hear my parents be like, oh, but she's an alcoholic, you know, yeah. growing up. And I was like, but that's not me. I just, I just got a little bit of an, an issue. <laughs> I just, yeah. I call it a little bit of a drinking, drinking problem. Because when you think of it, something as a little bit of a drinking problem, 
to me, that means, okay, it's a little bit of a problem. So I can solve that shit. But if yeah. you give me a label, like I am diseased and I have, you know, I'm an alcoholic, like how do I, how do I tackle that? That sounds really scary and impossible. And so just like intuitively, it bugs me. Yeah, I understand. And I think it's also just so, I don't even know. There's something, there is something to like that happens within me that is so inflamed when I hear when I hear somebody parading around as a normal person referring to another person as a sick person because of, of of addiction. And I think it's just I cannot like I can't put the you know, I, I haven't unpacked it fully, but it is one of the things that I think has always just lit me up in this space was I could meet, you know, and, and I, I have a friend and he I look up to his work in the space and then talks about people like they're, you know, he like has actually used the word his beloved addicts. And it's so infantilizing. There's so much to it that I think just feels othering and feels like it doesn't actually serve a purpose. And for me, I think it's also really important to state there was a period of time where I did adopt it. And when I did use it, at first, there was like a power in it. And because I felt powerful in my decision. And when I was out with individuals who could not before understand why I would just quit drinking, they definitely understood alcoholism. And so when I would tell people I'm an alcoholic, I can't drink, there was actually an empowering piece of it, but it wasn't an empowering label for me in general. And so it was, it felt good in that it put a label to something that was ineffable, that, that it it gave validity to my pain and my struggle, but also it just felt like, it felt like it was just murdering parts of me and it felt right. It just felt, it, it feels shameful. Yeah. It just feels shameful. And, and, you know, it's not, I mean, it's, it's not, you and I both know that. Um, It is powerful. And so I definitely don't want to take away from the experience of anyone who does adopt it and use it in a good way. um, Because, you know, to each your own. But um, for me, I just crawl when people say, oh, but you're like, I had a couple people write some articles, you know, with the book press. And it was like former recovering attorney and alcoholic. And I'm like, ah, can we just call me a binge drinker? Or something? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, because I don't know. It's yeah. Yeah, that's a tough one. But um, it's personal too. And it is. It's yeah. So like, I think that it is one of these things where we get to decide for ourselves what labels we take, but other people never get to decide that for us ever. And so I think that that's where the distinction lie, lies. lies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I love the right question that you ask is alcohol getting in the way of my life. So let's, let's talk about kind of the theme of the book because obviously it's very, it's very dense and in depth, but what is the, the main question that you're trying to address with your book? Oh God. Um, I think the main question is, well, I don't think there is one main question. That's, that's almost just because the book was so, there's so many pieces to it. I think there's a few things. I think the main thing, I think chapter 16 is the most important chapter. I think the last chapter is the reason I wrote the book because I was led to specific conclusions about the place of addiction and how empowering it is, how it's a catalyst, how terrible relationships with, with um, addictive substances or even addictive behaviors um, are catalysts for us to do this work on ourselves that allows us to do work within the world. And I think of all of the things that are wrong in our world, and it is all a, an expression of the state 
of our relationship with ourselves. And so when you look around and you look at, look at activism, you have to look first at the state of some activist relationship with themselves. And I think that that is just, that is the key for me, which was that this was something that I felt very duped into doing. And also something that I felt, you know, I was led to do because of how little choice I had as a kid to understand my greatness and my depth. And you mean drinking, you felt like you were duped into drinking. But even like just murdering myself in the different ways, hating Mm, myself. You know, I was a little girl growing up in the United States. I was trained to hate my body. Like I was, I I took diet pills when I was 11. I hated my body from the time I knew I had a body. Right. And I, I wanted to always be someone else or have someone else's life. And I think this is just the natural product of a, of a you know, white supremacist capitalist system. And so these like messages that we receive, you're not okay, you're not enough. And then we don't have the coping mechanisms in order to take care of ourselves. So just we're led into this path. And this is where I think alcohol is like so important because, or addiction is so important because having a problem with alcohol is not the same thing as having a problem with shopping or having, you know, like a codependent relationship It is so specific is so painful and it begs you to look at it. And when you do look at it, right, because it, it won't allow you to not, I mean, it really is something It will either kill you or you'll look at it. And it's one of these things that is so painful. It causes us to do this work on ourselves. We wouldn't otherwise do. And so it acts as this catalyst to help us to actually go further, go deeper and, you know, heal ourselves in the way that, or treat ourselves the way we're always meant to be treated. And so, I mean, there's, that is the reason I wrote the book was to basically spell out why, how did we end up here? How do we get out of this? And how does getting out of this actually affect the world in a different way than, than we, you know, typically see it. I think addiction is just such like goes hand in hand. And, and I think as, as mental illness does goes, you know, hand in hand with, world change. Right. I like what you said, how you have to either look at it or it will kill you. Yeah. I mean, wow. That's so true though. You have to see it. And it can be a slow death. Yeah. That's what I said. Mine was a slow, socially acceptable death. That's the track I was on. Yeah. 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 It doesn't have to be fast and and in flames. (laughs) It can be though. It can be. Yeah. Absolutely. So how, when you decide to quit drinking and you're doing it on your own, I did it on my own, you did it on your own and you're like, I'm done. But there's all of a sudden this really big space of time that, you know, for me was from 5 p.m. to, I don't know, 2 a.m. sometimes that I did the things. I suddenly found myself um, very full of empty time, which is weird because I don't know where that time is now. Um, But what do you do to cope because we become drinkers because we're trying to cope with the shit that we didn't learn how to cope with. Like our bodies are the th- the thoughts in our head. So how do we learn as grown adults, 35, 45, 55 to cope? To fill the time you mean to cope with boredom? To cope with, with-, with all of it. Like to fill the time is one, but also the, the thoughts that we were drinking to quiet or the, the, the habits that, you know, the, the void that alcohol filled, like, what do you do with that? 
Well, I think there's so much to it. I love The War of Art. Um, it's a great book. By oh, Steve it is Cusco. good. Yes. yes. And, and in it, he talks about like um, resistance and, and our resistance to our greatness. And I think that's part of it, right? Which is that oftentimes like there is so much that we have within us. And the way he kind of talks about it is like, the, the creativity is this expression. It's this letting go of energy. It's allowing things to move through you. And creativity, like invert, like basically not released is an implosion. And so I think that oftentimes addiction is a masking of all of this bigness, all of this greatness that we have within us. And so I think creative outlet allowing things to come forth, letting things move through us. I've never been so creative in my entire life. I would never identify as an artist. I would have never identified as a writer. Um, and I think that allowing myself to, to create, and at first it was like drawing. Um, it was, it was definitely meditating. It was definitely allowing myself to be by myself. It was taking photos traveling. Like there was just so much that was, you know, from very simple things to, um, you know, extravagant things. Like I did travel a lot. I had the privilege of traveling a lot in my first you know, year or two. But I think there's, you know, I filled that time by essentially starting to believe that there was more to me and more in me. And I love Elizabeth Gilbert's talk. She gives a, a TED talk and she talks about genius and how this is something, you know, that we, like we're not genius, but genius moves through us. So I believe in the creativity piece and the purpose piece. There's also, I think, the learning to be with ourselves. I could never be by myself. And that time where I had no choice, I could not turn off. Um, I had to actually confront what it was like to sit at home by myself throughout, you know, for an entire evening, completely sober. Um, learning to be my, by myself and not using other people or substances to turn away from that was also a huge part of yeah, this. Yeah. Um, like reacquainting myself with myself. And now I'm kind of my own favorite company. Um, <laughs> and there, I mean, there's just so many things. And I, the way that I also look at it too, and the way that I frame it is we have a toolbox to get us through life. And sometimes, you know, my toolbox at the beginning of sobriety or you know, even before I got sober was full of really unhealthy things like cigarettes or pot or alcohol or codependent relationships or shopping or binging and purging. And then slowly over time, I took alcohol out and I started putting other things in like meditation or long hot baths or dancing in my apartment by myself. And then over time, one by one, as I started to place these other healthy things in writing, um, taking photos, um, you know, walking around and looking up at the sky, I would take out other stuff that helped me get through. And before I knew it, you know, I had some still shitty coping mechanisms. I will always, but mostly what I had was really healthy ways of taking care of myself. And I think it's just a slow and gradual process. You know, it's not this huge typical, you know, like the way that we look at it oftentimes is like, it has to be this huge dramatic thing. Like yeah. I'm going to quit my job and become a yoga instructor. I'm going to quit my job and like go and travel. The world. Like it's not like that. It's just slowly allowing ourselves to replace one thing for another and to evolve in that time and to continue to evolve. So patience, we're all so good at it. <laughs> yeah, right. Not. So what do you currently, so you're the seven years sober. Mm -hmm. What do you struggle with now? Like what has been the, the biggest thing that just 
continues to permeate and and you struggle with because for me it's it's still food I mean I think food was probably my first struggle and it will probably be my last and and it's a real convenient problem since you have to have food to live um but I I struggle with food a lot it's probably on the daily um every every day is better but I continue to struggle Yeah, I understand that completely. Um, Food, um, still, I I think I have, it's almost like I've taken it down from a huge size monster to a very small one. Um, I still have, uh, I I, I made a pact with myself to, you know, to to not... um, not stick my finger or other instruments down my throat anymore. And that has, um, that, that's a black and white thing I could do. Cause you know, like you said, you can't cut food out. You have to renegotiate. Um, I, I also found intuitive eating and that like, so I, that one is not, I mean, it's still there and I have low grade eating disorder that I, that I think I will always have just like you, I will never figure the food thing out because it's so connected to, to so much body image, all those things. And so, and I'm okay with that. It doesn't, own me the way it used to. Um, codependency, I think, is what has been the hardest thing for me to sort out. Um, thinking I needed someone else to complete me, and I feel actually pretty good with that. I think it's self-worth, if I were to put a name. Like, mm. worth um, equating my, you know, being liked, be, like equating my worth with, with doing, feeling like I'm never doing enough. I think that that's like a typical like theme that I'm in right now and then I also think it's just um yeah I think it's it's some of those things and then it's also just um oh I'm just exhausted and so I also (laughs) like I because of those things I'm also exhausted and so I feel like I am always on the back foot of my health, even though I feel I'm like a thousand times healthier than I was when I was drinking and smoking and smoking pot and, you know, really in the throes of bulimia. Um, I just feel like I'm always on the back foot of feeling vital. And so I struggle with my vitality. Um, and, um, yeah, I think it's just like managing my energy. I think that that is that still is it managing my energy. Lots That's of such a good one. Managing your energy. Yeah. It's hard. It's so hard. And it's so tied up into, um, just this constant drive to, um, to achieve that I've, mm-hmm. you know, that I've always had as a surrogate for feeling like shit in other ways, you know, right. I could right. feel good if I did stuff. I was so lucky to come across um, Ryan Holiday's Ego is the Enemy a week before my publication day. And I started listening to it on Audible. And, oh my gosh, Holly. Yes. Yes. Really? Yes. Yes. Oh, and it, it okay. will, um, if you're struggling with the self-worth piece and being liked and, and negative reviews and shitty sure. comments, um, this book, I am so thankful I read it. I listened to it before my book came out because it talks about how ego is what's driving many of the things you just mentioned. And and we all have an ego, but it's, it's driving that need to constantly work, to produce, to just, you know, just push yourself beyond like all shape and time. Um, But at the same time, it talks about how setting aside your ego allows you to continue that work because like ego says, 
my book came out. It didn't hit the New York Times. Fuck it. I'm done with this. Yeah. Where your purpose says, it doesn't matter if anyone buys this book. My purpose is here to put this out into the world. And, and it, it kind of balances the things we know, which we know, you know, it's true that we should keep doing the thing that we're here to do. Yeah. But ego says you should just crawl in a hole and move to Iowa. Not that any, you know, Iowa, you have to go to Iowa, but, um, it's, it just was so helpful to me because it, it, it gave me the ability to step back and see when I got a shitty comment or someone wrote something mean, I could just be like, okay, my ego wants to claw their eyes out, but this does not need to stop me from going forward. And it was so helpful. So ego is the enemy. I'm, yeah, I'm making my husband read it. (laughs) I'm like, you need this book. (laughs) It was helpful. Yeah. Um, I definitely will check it out. But I didn't realize how much I struggled with ego. Yeah. It's a big thing for me. We're told ego looks something. I mean, I had a really great experience when I was in yoga teacher training because I was teaching. I I never, I took, I went through multiple and I, you know, never really became a yoga teacher. Um, but I took a vinyasa training and I took it from one of my, like, I mean, just, uh, I would say one of my main teachers, Stephanie Snyder. And I remember when I was doing my first practicum, I was just like, little me, I shouldn't be doing this, you know? And then she was like, it takes just as much ego to think that you suck as it does (laughs) that you're greater than everyone else. And I've always thought like, because when we do go into that story, when I do go into that story, it is still like, I make it about me and still the same thing. It's still this like complete, like loss of, of like connection to why I would do any of this in the first place. Right. It's not to be great. It's to do great things to bring stuff through me. And it's because so, it's your truth and it's what you're here to do. Yeah. Wow. It still is hard. I mean, it's, it's still just, hard. Yeah. It's terribly hard. I think like I, you know, I, I think I can, I can read all the books on it and still it's just, it's, I think it is those practice, that practice. I've, I have actually not read any of my reviews at this point. I have refused to go through because I just don't need to. I've come to this place of like, I don't really, I like good or bad. I really don't. I, I want to have my peace with what my work is. Right. Really leave aside what anybody said about it on Amazon for fuck. <laughs> um, yeah, it makes it, it's been an, it's been a real interesting month. It uh, truly has. And I'm excited to check out that book. Um, yeah. Well, Holly, I know you've got to go, but I appreciate your time so much. And I've been a longtime follower and um, thank you for helping me through some, some hard times with my sobriety and, and for all the work you're doing. It's um, you're needed. Thank you. Thank you for having me on here. I, I really appreciate it. And um, it was a great conversation to have. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining me on this episode of The Same 24 Hours. Remember to rate, review, and share this podcast. It really matters. I appreciate it. See you next time.